there, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. Well, it's almost cliche now to say that we live in an age of identity politics, for better or for worse. Not a day goes by lately where we don't seem to have some kind of new controversy blowing up online that is ostensibly an expression of that term, uh, whether it be to do with toxic masculinity in online gaming communities, the tearing down of Confederate statues in Southern American states, the failure of Hillary Clinton's election campaign uh, to recognize that gender is not a category that excludes the working class, or the right to freedom of speech of members of the so-called intellectual dark web, uh, you get the point. It seems we're just awash with this rapidly proliferating series of disputes over how we regulate speech and symbolic acts in the public sphere. Clearly, we do think these debates are important. After all, as any politically active user on Twitter and Facebook will tell you, we can spend vast amounts of time in arguments about these issues, and we continue to engage in them, even though they don't seem to change anyone's minds. And reports suggest that they're actually not very good for our mental health. So how did we get here? What made us suddenly so aware of identity, and why do we feel the need to argue about it? Is there anything redeeming about identity politics, and how, or to what extent, should the left be engaging in it? To discuss these questions and more, our guest for this episode is Marie Morin. Marie is a lecturer in Equality Studies at the School of Social Policy, Social Work and Social Justice in UCD in Dublin, and she has a piece in the latest issue of Historical Materialism called Identity and Identity Politics. Based on highly original research, she argues in the piece that identity is actually a very new concept in the analysis of social life, and that we need to exercise much greater care in our approach to distinguishing what it is and what it isn't. As you'll hear in the interview, Marie isn't necessarily opposed to identity politics, not by any means, but she does believe that we may have taken a wrong turn in our grasp of its political significance. Thus, while we might find it hard not to be put off by the toxicity of today's call-out culture, Marie would remind us that the black power movements who first embraced the concept of identity in the 1960s did not have an essentializing approach to it. That is to say, they didn't see their struggle to secure rights and recognition for their group in the public sphere as an end in itself. So this is going to be one of the big topics in the interview you're about to hear, what it means to essentialize identity and the linkages between today's identity mania and capitalism's culture of self. Towards the end of the interview, we're going to get into a good discussion of the similarities and differences between Marie's approach to the topic and those presented by Assad Haider in his new book, Mistaken Identity. There's been a lot of controversy about this book online lately, but I think you'll find Marie's take to be a thoughtful and balanced one. I'll put links to all these readings in the show notes, but one quick word before we get into the interview. I just want to apologize for the poor audio quality. Due to unforeseen circumstances, we actually ended up having to record this interview in Skype. I've done my best to clean it up, but you're definitely going to hear some digital noise, a bit of echo on the line. It's a shame. I apologize for it, uh, but stick with us. I think this is a really fascinating interview. Marie is a very careful and very precise scholar, and I think you're going to agree with me that the interview is a real contribution uh, to current debates about identity politics. 
So, Marie Morin, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Fully Automated. Um, so, in your own words, uh, we live in identity-saturated times, and I think you might be right. Um, where even a couple of decades ago, I think it was kind of a more obscure academic topic, uh, if at best, are something that preoccupied maybe the minds of people only on the margins of activism. Um, today, it feels like we are awash with debates over identity-based demands, uh, really sort of having ramped up in the last 10 years or so, maybe. And of course, uh, we've seen in recent uh, year or two, the, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, a number of student moments, student movements focused on uh, safe spaces and such. Um, many conservative, and I suppose some leftist critics alike would have said that Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016 was too focused on identity issues. Uh, we've seen the emergence of the alt-right, uh, complaining that liberals want to erase whiteness. We've seen the rise of the men's rights movement. We've seen Gamergate. And I suppose perhaps even a minor example recently, but I was thinking about Kelly Marie Tran's op-ed in the New York Times there uh, a week ago, uh, responding to her persecutors uh, who uh, are maybe more conservative Star Wars fans um, who've been chasing her on Twitter, chasing her off Twitter, in fact. Um, and I think it sort of just all shows, you know, how uh, how, how intense and how stark uh, the... Um, perceived stakes are with identity politics today, um, especially in an age of social media. Now, uh, none of those things are necessarily the topic of your work, but um, maybe just for listeners before we get into the meat and potatoes of this today, uh, for listeners who are wondering what all the fuss is about, what what is identity politics and how has it come to be such a big deal? Right, okay, good question. Um, I suppose the first thing I want to say is that I'm not convinced that everything you've listed there actually counts as an example of identity politics. Okay. And yeah. I mean, I think that the expansiveness of the term today is a very real problem, and it makes it very difficult to properly evaluate what's going on with identity politics or to properly adjudicate on the identity politics debates. I mean, we can never be sure that people are actually talking about the same thing. Um, it's amazing, really. We pull swathes of people making very confident, very assertive, very bombastic claims about identity mm -hmm. politics, you know, about how awful or how necessary or how wonderful you can put in your adjective of choice they are, without ever really pausing to consider whether, you know, what they're condemning is the same, is the same subject as what the, the other person is approving. So we have on the people on the right, I mean, to give you some examples, we have people on the right mm. using identity politics to refer to all gender, race or sexual based organizing. And this is, I think, really dangerous. Mm. We have some people on the left using identity politics to refer to call out culture or politics mm -hmm. based defending safe spaces or challenging microaggressions and so on. Um, with sort of a mainstream media use of identity politics to refer to, you know, the politics of Hillary Clinton, to playing the race card in inverted commas, to browse over transgender bathrooms, to policies that are pro-migrant or pro-woman and mm -hmm. the rest. And I suppose what I want to ask is, are all these really instances of identity politics? And is everything you listed an instance of identity politics? And, mm -hmm. You know, what I'm going to argue in a bit is that they're not. But, but, something has, but something has happened with the idea of identity that makes people think they are. So, and, and I know that's jumping ahead, but in a way you made me by asking that very big opening question. So, right. But I do want to answer your, your question straight off with, you know, 
which I think in order to kind of engage with this question, we have to spell out the sort of standard story about identity politics and why they've come to be such a big deal. So so on that, I guess I guess it's possible to distill a particular version of the identity politics story that most people agree on, um, which isn't the same as saying it's the truest or best version of the story, but there you go. Um, yeah, yeah. And this story is that identity politics understood as collective mobilization around an oppressed or marginalized group identity, came to prominence in advanced industrial societies in the 60s and 70s, where they displaced class politics or other universalist forms of politics like Mm -hmm. civil rights movements. Um, And in fact, many commentators claim that it's a mistake to see these identity politics as in any sense new, and they point to the existence of, you know, women's movements, anti-racist activism, anti-colonial resistance, um, various nationalisms and so on, as evidence of identity politics in existence up to 200 years ago. Um, so this more apparently nuanced version of the story goes like this. Okay, so we've always had identity, identity has always mattered, we've always had identity politics, but due to some political and economic and cultural shifts in the mid-20th century, identity politics have achieved increased prominence and visibility, in many cases displacing the kinds of class, based or liberal politics that preceded them. So I think that's sort of how most people understand identity politics and its emergence. And depending yeah. on where you stand intellectually, you'll have different understandings of the nature of these economic or political shifts that precipitated the emergence of identity politics. You know, was it changes to the structures of capitalism? Was it the suppression of class-based organizing? Was it the emergence of a new kind of network or um, post-industrial or information society? Was it due to the grit and savvy and determination of different race or gender activists and so on? And depending on where you stand politically, you will evaluate this apparent shift um, to identity differently as well. You would either find it something to rue and regret or something really to celebrate. So these differences have led to very, very sharp divisions, not just between left and right politics, but I think within left scholarship and activism too. And, you know, that's sort of where we're at today. Um, and, and I mean, in the 90s, I suppose, which is when the first round of identity politics rows emerged, Nancy Fraser very famously depicted a situation where the left had antagonistically divided into two oppositional camps. Right, um, right, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we still see this today. Um, a social so she's left- kind of like the, 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 the kind of the, the, in a sense, she sort of provides some of the foundational tools that we still use today to, to think about this. Yeah, and she was one of the first to sort of analyze it and to sort of, um, well, maybe not one of the first, but her analysis, you know, really resonated with people Mm -hmm. and people, you know, responded to it, you know, kind of angrily in the case of people like Judith Butler Butler and Iris Marion Young Uh said she was Uh creating a false dichotomy. But a lot of people at the same time said, no, she was describing something that really was happening on the left, which was this very clear shift between the social left who thought, you know, that the emphasis on identity was a terrible distraction from, you know, politics of class and that it fractured class-based movements, it fractured universal organizing, it concealed the material basis of oppression, and it really was a disaster for left politics. And then what she called the cultural left, who defended the political and theoretical insights of identity analyses and said, you know, identity politics has really brought about um, increased social, political, material equality for excluded groups that, that, that they weren't achieving under sort of standard universalist or class analysis and politics. Um, now, I think in the when, when Nancy Fraser was writing, a lot of these debates were pretty much contained within 
left wing academia and politics. It was fairly, you know, wide levels of right wing antipathy towards identity politics at the time, but that was sort of contained within a few sort of um, famous radio talk shows and a few kind of public scholarship books and so on. But today, these identity politics debates have really exploded out of the university. And I think it's, you know, particularly mm. in the aftermath of Brexit and the surprising um, US presidential re- election results, you know, they, they, they now engulf mainstream politics and media and online debates. And since everyone has an opinion on how the failure of the left can be attributed to identity politics, the scourge of identity-based organizing, right. you know, microaggressions and safe spaces, and the role of identity politics and the rise of the fascist right and many, many more issues. So that's where we're at. Like, that's, I think, sort of a, kind of a canned history of what identity politics are and why they matter and why there's such a fuss about them today. So you were and and um and how she was one of the early people to kind of call into question uh or at least um ask whether uh identity politics are so facto progressive politics. And uh for her if I recall the uh concern is uh, whether you know it was symptomatic of a something like a loss in confidence in our ability to imagine collective endeavors, right? Collective organizing. And uh, a sort of a, a forgetting or an amnesia about the successes of organized and integrated forms of struggle for, for justice uh, that would have been more characteristic of the first half of the last century. Um, and perhaps for her, we can sort of say there's a, a kind of a, a trade-off uh, between the two kinds of struggle, that the more we might focus on one, the less inherently we're struggling on the other. Um, reading your piece in Historical Materialism, I don't think you're entirely um, opposed to that position, but I think you do modify it carefully. Um, it's not just that identity politics was always there in some sense, as she seems to suggest, and, and that the advent of the new left was merely a shift in focus or a shift in emphasis from material issues to questions of culture, race, gender, sexuality, what have you, but that the concept of identity itself was something actually quite new uh, at, at, at that time. Now, I think for many that is going to be quite a controversial claim, but but you do yeah. provide a significant amount of evidence in support of it, um, of, of this idea of a, of a sort of a recent genealogy, if you will, of yeah. today's identity politics. So so perhaps we can get into some of the nuances of your view here, and maybe uh, you can just tell us a little bit about um, the type of research methodology, I suppose, that, that gave you this insight, that helped you or that led you to discover in contrast with Fraser, this this recent origin of identity politics. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll probably kind of answer that a little bit in reverse because sure, it was more that well, I discovered that identity was a new idea, and I'll explain. I'll talk a bit more about that now in a minute, and then that sort of opened up a new sort of way of thinking about identity in its historical context for me. So. Right. So to begin, I suppose, yeah, you're right. I do have some affinity with Fraser's position, but you're also right to say that I'm making it basically a different kind of claim um, mm-hmm. that involves placing not just identity politics, but the very category of identity in historical perspective. Now, Fraser was, you know, one of the strengths of, the, of that key paper in 1995 that was published in New Left Review, and then that was became the basis of her book, Post-Socialist Condition, in 97. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the, 
the very, you know, the reason why it was so kind of, um, respected and shared, you know, and discussed at the time was because she made such a strong effort to place identity politics in historical perspective. But mm-hmm. what she doesn't do and what I do in my research is place the category of identity itself in historical mm-hmm. perspective. And what I argue, as you said, and yes, it is controversial, um, is that the idea of identity as we now know it, as it is elaborated in the very familiar categories of social and personal identity, this is a very recent and a very novel idea in Western politics and culture. Now, people, yeah, people find this really, really, really hard to fathom. But mm. bear with me. Okay. Before I'm, I'm bearing. The, <laughs> I'm bearing. holding on here. Before the 1960s. So there was no discussion, no discussion of sexual, gender, ethnic identity, political or national identity, consumer identity, corporate identity, brand identity, identity crisis, of losing or finding one's identity. There was, there was no discussion at all of identity in any of the ways that, we, that are so familiar to us today and that we would find it so hard to do without. Yeah, and, it's... it's- it's, it's, it can't be, Marie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, let me continue. It, it, it's so counterintuitive. Yeah. Well, okay, but I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna back up what I'm saying. Um, yeah. Neither, you know, the theorists or writers that we now consider to be, the, you know, the founders of identity, they didn't write about identity prior to the 50s and 60s. So people like, you know, if you open any sort of introductory textbook on identity, or whatever, you'll, you'll hear claims that, you know. Virginia Woolf and George Herbert Mead and um, W. Right. Dubois and Freud, they all wrote about identity. Well, well they didn't. And if, and if you look at their texts, the word identity doesn't appear at all. Hmm. Um, and, you know, we live in an age where, you know, books are digitalized and, you know, you know, Google, you can search inside books. It makes it really easy for skeptics and for even not skeptics to check this claim. So, you know, I invite, I invite people to do this. And actually, as an aside, I remember being at an interview for an academic job at a very prestigious Irish university. It was one of these, you know, um, setups where I had to, after the interview, I had to present my research to the faculty. And so I did. And I got as far as making this claim. And a lot of people in the departments, you know, their research was based on identity, as it is yes. in the vast majority of sociology departments. Every second person is working on identity. And I could see, you know, that the audience who were also assessing whether I should get the job or not, because they were the faculty, were looking at me with you know, horror, disgust, outrage, fear, a whole <laughs> range of <laughs> emotions. And I said to them, you know, check, you know, check out the claim. Have a look. Open up your book on, you know, from W. Dubois or whoever it is, Virginia Woolf, George Maiden. Check. Do they, do they talk about identity? Do they actually talk about identity? And people got out their iPads and I could see them flicking and searching and the chair of the panel, you know, very calmly took out her iPads because I had to, to stop my presentation at this point and then she looked <laughs> she looked at her iPad and then she looked at me and she said, Oh my goodness, you're right. Now you'd think that there was a happy ending to the story that I got the job, but I think mm-hmm. I had antagonized too many people with these, you know, very difficult and challenging claims. And I know that's a long side, but it is to say that yeah, that you know, we're so used to this idea that identity we've always had identities that, you know, per- Matters of personal and social identity have always been important. They may have waxed and waned over history, but they've always been there. That people have wrote about, written about them as far back as Shakespeare. But the truth of the matter is, no, nobody uh-huh. used the word or talked about identity prior to the fifties and sixties. So okay, then. 
So that, I, I'm really glad you said that, but it also kind of, I, I, you know, I, I can imagine people at home listening to this or yeah. r- running on their treadmill listening to their podcast or whatever um, are at th- this point saying like, um, okay, sure. So they didn't use the word identity, but they were surely they were talking about what we typically mean by identity. So like maybe we can just do a little terminological work here or something like it, so a lot of people are going to think about identity in terms of what what we might otherwise traffic under the notion of subjectivity, right? Be it individual yeah. personhood, collective subjectivity. Um, so so are you doing something else with identity here, or, or, or why is identity not just you know just because the word wasn't used? Surely the concept was there, perhaps under a different set of terms. Yeah, and this is a really good question, and it's a sensible question, and it's definitely the next place you've got to go after you kind of make the kind of claim I've just made, that nobody right. talked about identity prior to the middle of the last century. Um, what we see happening is around the middle of the last century, though, I have to say, it's suddenly okay. a big explosion of use in the words across okay. a number of contexts in Western society. And the other point I need to make is that it's not that the word identity prior to this was never used, but that it was used only in a very, very narrow way to mean, and within, typically within analytical philosophy, to mean the sameness of an entity to itself or the continuity of that entity over time. Mm-hmm. So it's used kind of to refer to, you know, how do we know that this chair is the same chair tomorrow as it was yesterday and so on. It's this kind of oneness of an entity that it is the same, it's, it's equivalent to itself, it's the same as itself. It's a very narrow philosophical category and, okay. and you know it wasn't discussed outside that the only place the word identity was used was sort of incidentally as in when people would say oh there's an identity of interests here which simply mm-hmm. meant there was the sameness of interests you know the, the two parties had the same interests anyway from the 60s the word identity became came to be used in the sense we now easily recognize in two contexts in, in western societies and i suppose what I, what what the, the kind of connecting point there is that it became, with the explosion of use came a significant change of meaning. Okay, so it moved uh-huh. from meaning the sameness of an entity to itself to meaning personal identity as we know it today, you know, to have kind of distinctive features as an individual that mark you out as that individual or to um, mark out membership of a particular social group where you share certain features or characteristics with other members of that group. And um, what this means is that prior to the 1960s, it wasn't sort of an accident that people didn't use the words or that, you know, it just didn't mean then what it means mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. So in response to the question as regularly put to me that you just put to me, you know, in, in other words, was, you know, didn't people know who they were or think about it before the mid 20th century? The answer is yes, of course they did, but they did not frame or consider these issues in terms of identity. Okay. Did people, you know, mobilize around issues of race, gender, ethnicity, religion, nationality? Yes, they absolutely did. But they did not refer to these as identities. Uh-huh. So they they talked in terms of grouphood, in terms of personhood, in terms of subjectivity, as you said, but they didn't characterize these as in terms of the idiom of identity. They started to do this in the middle of the 20th century, and the question is, why? Mm-hmm. And what, what changed as a result? As you kind of asked there a moment ago, surely the concept of subjectivity or group persisted. Absolutely, it did. But yes. what I'm claiming is that something changed 
when it was refracted through the idiom of identity as this emerged into popular and political consciousness in the middle of the last century. And to understand what changed, what happened when we started to think about these key parts of the human condition, you know, what it is to be a particular person, what it is to be a member of a particular group, what happened when we started to think about these in terms of the idiom of identity. To understand this, well, I needed to call on a particular methodology, which is what you think you asked a few moments ago, which has Mm -hmm. to do with the relationship of language to both concepts and the material contexts in which it's used. And and to do that, I turned to the work of Raymond Williams, and that's when the discovery that identity was a new idea, that your, or that identity was a new word that hadn't been used prior to this point, that's when it started to open up all these new vistas for me and start, I started to be able to make these really much bigger connect, connections about the historical specificity and importance of identity. So I can tell you about that. Yeah, please do, because I'm interested. You talk about Raymond Williams a lot in the piece, and, and you use his concept of keywords, and it's, it's very clear uh, from your argument that um, he's helping you um, kind of connect uh, a dynamic material reality and a, and a historical development to um, to to this explosion of identity talk that you're referring to, right? So there's a there's a constitutive relationship here between changing historical conditions and this emergence. So so yeah, talk us through that, and 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 why why is this notion of keywords so important here? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So. A lot of Raymond Williams is rightly famous for this small little book called Keywords, but a lot of people use it or misuse it now in a very simple way to just mean a sort of an important word or even, you know, the way a keyword in an argument, you know, the search term or something like that. The kind of Certainly, yeah. But he didn't mean it that way. Raymond Williams also articulated a particular methodology within Marxism that he referred to as cultural materialism. Uh-huh. And it, it, he distinguished that from historical materialism because what it did was it was an adaptation of Marxism to take proper accounts of the materiality of culture. Yeah, he saw yeah. that, yeah, within traditional Marxism, culture was sort of rendered epiphenomenal. It was secondary. It was derivative. It was happening somewhere else away from real action, the real material action which was taking place in the economy. And he said this is a... We can't see the social world in this way. You know, that culture and language, it's not just residual and secondary, but it's, it's productive. It's part of the materiality of history. Okay. So it's kind of, it, it's not like a discourse analysis approach, which sort of sees nothing beyond the text. You know, it's, it, it sees language and culture as productive, not because they are coterminous with the whole of social reality because they are themselves material. They are uh-huh. built into our living. They are part of the texture of our lives. We can't act without language and without culture. Therefore, we have to give them their proper due, seeing them as forms of production and forms of action. So if, um, if, if so within well, Williams' cultural materialist, materialist methodology, the, the idea of a keyword makes sense. And to view a word as a keyword is really to do two things. Okay. Firstly, it's to view it as a word whose problems of meaning are inextricably bound up with the problems it's used to discuss. Okay. So the problems of meaning of any word like culture or industry or choice or this Mm -hmm. entity, they're not problems meaning that we can work out on a page, you know, they're not not problems meaning that we can sort of logically decide what's the true meaning. We could only work out the problems of meanings in relation to the problems and issues and social concerns they're used to discuss. 
the second thing to do with, with, with certain thing you do when you say, you know, that word is keyword in the William sense is to place the word in the historical context of its use in order to explore the social pressures and motivations that could have contributed to the emergence of development of that concept. Right. Or that it could have exerted a formative influence in the way it developed and has come to be used. So that's kind of a very quick overview of a very complex methodology within, you know, cultural Marxism. Um, and I don't mean that in the Jordan Peterson sense. I mean it. <laughs> <laughs> of sort of, you know, Western Marxism concerned with language and culture. But what it means for this discovery about the kind of novelty of uses of, our, of, the, of the word identity is that we can't treat this discovery as evidence of sort of a, just a cosmetic change in meaning or popularity of the word. But we must look directly at these changing meanings of uses in the social and material context in which these changes occurred. You have to see them as bound up with each other. And what I explore in detail in, in, in the book I wrote, Identity and Capitalism, is that the idea of identity, that, that these ideas of personal and social identity that we're now so familiar with, they didn't involve in a, evolve in a political or social vacuum, but in two specific contexts of use. The first was in the popular culture of newly consumerist societies, where the uh-huh. idea of identity evolved its now familiar personal sense. And the second place in which the word identity began to be used and began to be used in this way with all these new meanings was in what we now think of as the new social movements or the, quote, identity politics right, of right. the 60s and 70s onwards. And it was in that context where it evolved its social sense to signify meaningful membership of a particular social group. Mm-hmm. Now, so that's the context for the emergence of the term. What about the problems of its meanings? And the second thing the cultural materialist analysis reveals is that in the case of both personal and social identity, the older philosophical meanings of the word persisted. Right. Okay. Such that the use of the word identity to describe these experiences wasn't neutral, it wasn't innocent, but it was performative and it actively did something to how we understood personhood on the one hand and groupput on the other hand. So specifically Identity with its older connotations of oneness and sameness offered us a very particular way of conceptualizing and framing what it means to be a distinct person or part of a social group. So it offers or allows or prompts classification of individuals or groups as of a particular singular type. It allows us to say, I really am this kind of person. You really yeah. do belong to that group. So this is what philosophers call essentialism. So a kind of a key claim of of the book that I wrote a few years ago and, and the article recently is that um, what a cultural materialist uh, analysis shows us is that just, you know, against the kind of common tendency to treat identity as a property of individuals or groups, you know, my identity or lesbian and gay identity or Islamic identity, that identity is really a modern classificatory device and it classifies according what it According to what is considered essential to a particular person, type of person, or group. Yeah. Big arguments, I know. And it's hard to, right. it's hard to, you know, talk through it in, in, in kind of small chunks. I'm sure you have a few kind of questions well, you want me to elaborate on. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe let's just drill in a little more, um, on, on the word that's just come up for you there, essentialism. So if today we are using identity as the basis of our, demands for recognition, demands for justice, what have you, there seems to be a tendency, um, whether, regardless of whether we're speaking of ourselves as individuals or as a group, to, to understand ourselves essentially as creatures 
of, of common or shared traits that have this kind of cultural nature. So maybe we can start to unpack that a bit and, and start elaborating what it means to be first and foremost a creature of identity per se. Um, now you argue in your piece that identity in and of itself can, so defined, refer to almost anything. And it's, it's a cultural ideal in the sense, um, the, the, the irony being, I suppose, whereas post-structuralism in the academy had hoped to deconstruct essentialized differences, uh, and that was its project, the, mo the modern political movement that's emerged around identity uh, seems to want us to see the contingent aspects of who we are as almost like historically transcendent. And so one of the interesting parts of your piece um, is where you suggest that we can find ourselves departing from essentialized notions of nation, race, for example, which, you know, almost like in a biological sense, provide actual criteria uh, that prejudicial categories can be based on and instead start embracing arguments more by the likes of Apia um, that, that everyone is somehow, somehow, some way, a representative of a type, a racial type, or what have you. So, so let's start to talk through that. Maybe what's up with the idea of the contingent, the culturally contingent, as the basis of an actual type? How how has it come to pass that we're essentializing these contingent types, be it in terms of gender, religion, or what have you? Okay, good question. Oh, I mean, what in, you know, what how has it come to pass that we're now essentializing? What are basically contingent aspects of, of the individual or the group? I think in a word, the answer is because we're using the concept of identity to think through personhood and grouphood as opposed to other concepts. So, um, I mean, you say that I argue that identity in and of itself can, can pretty much refer to anything. Well, well, just to be clearer, I suppose what okay. I argue, yeah, what I argue is that Identity now operates as an essentializing device or mechanism and that it functions lexically to classify individuals or groups according to what is considered essential to them. But not just individuals or groups. You can talk about an institution having an identity or a culture yeah, yeah. having an identity or a nation having an identity or anything, anything having an identity. And what, what I, I say in the book and in the paper is that identity is sort of an empty classifier. It doesn't supply the grounds on which a group or an institution or a culture or a person is classified. But what it does say is that when you're attributing an, ident an identity to that, to that entity, you are saying that they have whatever is required to be characteristic of that type of person or that type of culture or that type of group. You're making an essentialist claim. So yeah. to it, it, I mean, a way to kind of understand it is to, is to contrast it with race, okay? Mm -hmm. So, whereas race classifies, it also supplies the criteria according to which a particular individual or group is classified. Now, it's spurious criteria, okay? You know, yeah, sort yeah. of various spurious biological claims that have been totally right. Nonetheless, it does supply those criteria. Yes. Ident identity doesn't, because anything can have an identity. What happens when you say something has an identity is you is you're making an essentialist claim about the type of entity that person or group or culture or whatever is. So to designate to designate an identity is you know is is simply to say um, that the 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 entity you're looking at is a particular kind of entity. What I say in the paper is that what what designation of an an identity, any identity masks 
is the very operation of the category of identity itself in enabling the kind of essentialist thinking that post-structural accounts of identity are so opposed to. Do you, do you, do you see what I'm saying there? It's that, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that to designate some socially salient features um, as an identity specifically, and not just as some contingent features of personhood, is, is, is exactly to invite the typographical categorization that gives rise to the scramble to deconstruct such supposedly pernicious essentialism and how we understand ourselves and others. Um, so I'm not sure if that was that clear. Do you want yes. To, yeah. So um, I guess what is very contradictory or strange about post-structural accounts of identity is that they sort of miss fact that to describe something as having an identity is precisely to make an essentialist claim about that thing. Mm-hmm. To say that I have an identity, to say that you know Catholics have an identity, that Muslim people have an identity, is precisely to make an essentialist claim about that group. And then I think post-structuralists and social constructionists get themselves mm-hmm. really tangled up because they spend their whole time trying to make the case that identity isn't essentialist. Well, if that's the case, don't use the category of identity to describe personhood or, or you know, or subjectivity mm-hmm. or throughput. Find a different category or a different term. You know, don't undo the, the work. You know, don't kind of set yourself up for a fall by describing yeah. essentialist terms to then have to spend the rest of your career basically making the case that identity isn't essentialist. Yeah, yeah, it's um, that's really well said. I, I, there's, there's certainly um. A contradiction uh, that needs to be defended. There. Yeah. One thing, maybe though, that we could push on here is like so. So far, you know, we've been talking about the, maybe the more group sense of essentialization. Yeah. And you also take pains in your paper to talk about the emergence of individual identity. And I, I'm just curious, like, so how how does that? Um, notion of, of of the contingent as essential play out for individuals um, you link you link it to the emergence of consumerism yeah um, and you suggest that identity was not so much changed by consumerism but that it was an expression of of, of the of the arrival of, of maybe what the Frankfurt School would have referred to as, as sort of one dimensional man. Can you can you talk us through that a bit? Yeah. So yeah. So so far, yeah, the argument is that um, identity emerged as a key category for understanding selfhood and grouphood in the middle of the last century. Right. One of the contexts in which it emerged was in the in the context of new social movements where. Um, um, the, you know, the Black Power movement used it very, very powerfully to describe what it was that was specific about the forms of black oppression in American capitalist societies. Um, why a civil rights movement, for example, wouldn't work, that we have to be aware of this, we have to work with the specificity of, of black oppression, but we also have to cultivate pride in so-called, what was now called black identity, and that the social sense of identity emerged in this context. But, and, and it emerged as an essentializing idea in this context, mm-hmm. just argues. Um, but at the same time, identity was evolving a second sense, not a social sense, but a personal sense. And we see this in 
how um, the category of identity was used or put to work in a different context, which was the context of the consumer society. Mm-hmm. And I guess the best way to explain the story I tell here is to contrast it with the standard story about identity and consumerism or identity and consumption. And mm-hmm. this is the story, and probably everybody will be familiar with this, because again, it's sort of, you know, introduction to, you know, consumer studies 101 and sociology. And it's, this is the story that the advent of consumer society dramatically affected how people formed and understood their identities. So we've very important Theorists of, of consu- consumption or consumerism and modernity, people like Featherstone, Bauman, Giddens, Beck, all these theorists. Right. They're all saying that people, that whereas people used to form their identities through home and family and work, in the era of consumerism, they have now started to form their identities through the market, through purchase on the market, through consumption. Mm-hmm. But this mm-hmm. presumes the idea of identity and the idea of personal identity to pre-existed this era of consumption, this kind of right, right, which I'm arguing it hasn't. So yes. what I'm arguing is much is the same way the idea of social identity emerged and became relevant in the context of its use in the new social movements, which needed to be clear about the specificity of their oppression and also foment group pride. The idea of personal identity emerged in these contexts of consumption, where it enabled and where it was sort of useful to this mode of capitalist organization um, in, the, in the mid-century. Um, and uh, another interesting feature of the sort of standard stories of identity and consumption is that they all hark back to, say, Simmel and Babelin and the Frankfurt School, and they say, you know, these theorists were really great because they were the first to recognize the impact of consumption on identity. And they say, yeah, and they told us, you know, that actually our identities are now shaped by consumerism and this is bad for blah, blah reasons. Well, yeah. Again, as I've argued, you know, have a look. Have a look at what, you know, go back to the texts of Simmel and Babelin and the Frankfurt School and you'll find that they do not use the word identity at all. The word identity theory comes up in the Frankfurt School, all right, but surprise, surprise, what does that refer to? It refers to the philosophical sense of the sameness of an entity to itself. It doesn't yeah. refer to personal identity in the sense we now know it. So, but these theorists were really important nonetheless because they helped us trace the forces in the early 20th century that would eventually um, lead to the need for the, for the idea of identity as we now know it. Okay? Because what they described was a process of social emulation and distinction began to take place through consumerism in the 20th century. So we know this from the Babelin's theory of the new leisure classes and conspicuous consumption, that these groups started to distinguish themselves from other groups um, which were deeply class processes, but they started to do it on the terrain of culture. So it made it look like it wasn't anything to do with class, class, social class at all. It was to do with taste and distinction and, you know, mm-hmm. all these sorts of lifestyle-oriented things. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the middle of the 20th century, at least in America, with the consumer boom, if suddenly these processes of distinction and uh, emulation, or a simul put it, of equalization and individualization that were once the reserve of sort of wealthier classes were available to most people. Right. Uh, you know, the American consumer society. This is also a context where the language of class has been very much suppressed, where unions were sort of being shut down and, you know, the context of the, of the Cold War and McCarthyism and so on. So it became, um, it became necessary for these processes of emulation and distinction, which were really about class, but to take a different form as they came to be, 
you know, kind of uh, popularized. A lot of people became involved in them, you know, what used to be called keeping up with the Joneses or setting yourself apart from the Joneses. And the language of identity emerged as the perfect vehicle for this. This was also the era of the of the um, the so-called, you know, the mass society. And there yeah. was a fear, I don't know if it was real or, you know, um, contrived, that, th- that there was this homogenization going yeah. on, this era of grey uniformity. So the idea of identity emerged as a sort of perfect vehicle for expressing individual difference and distinction in this context. There were very much class processes again, but they didn't appear like that because it was all about my individual identity. And ironically, of course, if you sell to you know hundreds of thousands of people on the basis of unique identity, there's nothing unique about it at all. You're in fact undermining the apparent distinctiveness of that individual unique personal identity by the fact that it's available for consumption on the marketplace, and anybody who wants to, can, you know, can buy into that lifestyle and, and apparently develop their their distinctiveness on that basis. Yeah, that's why I love the first episode of the TV show Mad Men, because I think um, the character Donald Draper captures precisely that uh, the, the irony of, um, of what you're talking about there. You know, the, the, yeah. I think it's, you probably know it. It's the scene where the Marlboro cigarette guys are in the room and they're like, we're screwed. The government's told us, <laughs> telling everyone that cigarettes are bad for us. He's like, it's the best thing that ever happened to you. Everyone wants to be an individual in a mass society. And... Uh, we're going to sell them danger. <laughs> we're going to exactly. sell them the death drive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. And I suppose where, like, you know, kind of where my argument hinges or where it ends up is that I think significantly we see that the idea of personal identity invited the problem it was assumed to settle, which is just what you brought up, what you mentioned there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, once people are persuaded that they have an identity in the first place, which, remember, only happened mm-hmm. around the 1960s, before that yes. point, they have an identity. But once people are persuaded that they have an identity in the first place, in part by its very invention, they're motivated to try to find it. Well, you've got an identity. Well, where is my identity? Well, in the consumer society, this psychological problem or personal problem of finding identity finds a ready solution in practices of consumption, which allow for the construction mm-hmm. of that identity, thereby creating it and so-called finding it at the same time. So maybe this is a good interesting uh, point to, uh, to to stop and um, ask you something like the following. I mean, um, we've been talking about um, an emergence of a kind of a, a discursive politics of identity in a, in a group sense that has any number of emancipatory potentials, right? Um, you know, it, 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 uh, Asad Haider refers to the, the Kambahi River Collective as, as a sort of a, you know, uh, a group that sort of deliberated on the, the purposiveness of identity and, and, and how identity can, can, uh, you know, construe the right way, making the right kind of connections to real existing material conditions can, can lead to a new consciousness that allows us to, to form a, a solidarity. Um, upon which we can base a politics. On the other hand here, though, when it comes to this kind of consumeristic identity, that doesn't seem to be the same kind of thing. That doesn't seem to be a discursive, deliberative, purposive uh, discussion. That seems to be much more like, um, as you were just saying to yourself a minute ago, like an an individual quest that, that really can be read in very cynical terms, um, as a sort of uh, the outcome of a of a of a of a distraction uh, or a seduction by modern capitalism to um, you know d- d- distract us from what should otherwise be 
say a class consciousness, right? And and I just wondered, would would you object to me sort of asking the question, you know, as as someone like a James Livingston might, you know, is consumerism actually such a bad thing? Isn't there a way to look at the consumer subject uh, less as one who is the victim of an individualistic false consciousness or the manipulation of taste by, a, say, a, a Don Draper, the victim of a Don Draper? But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the marks of the, the, the Gotha program or, or other places where he sort of talks about the kind of almost good sides of capitalism, the capitalist marketplace, the capitalist marketplace. Uh, tends to to melt all that is solid into air, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It erases uh, differences, pre-capitalistic differences that were, you know, very tyrannical in their in their in their politics. Um, so, so what would be your response to 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 people, maybe say like Livingston, who would argue that um, many of the things that capitalism tries to sell us, sure, yeah, are crap. You know, Britney Spears' last album dreadful right you know no one's going to to gainsay that but if we reject consumerism as opposed to individual consumeristic trinkets um and and write it off simply as this homogenizing force that that sort of cynically sets us all on this mission to find ourselves in 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 this banal sense the political solution to that seems to be one that rejects consumption and, and ultimately embraces perhaps a logic of austerity and, and perhaps even ultimately reaction. And and I'm just curious, like as socialists, and I'm not putting that term in your mouth necessarily, but like or as people of the left, aren't we trying to do away with all that? You know, um how do we how do we find a relationship to consumption um that uh, that liberates us as as unfolding singular purposive beings such that we can have a a democratic relationship to the material world, but not not one that 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 censors it. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a really interesting question, and I suppose some of it hinges on whether you're asking me about consumption or consumerism. Um, I suppose consumption is just the consumption of things, of commodities, right, right. Um, which is inevitable in a capitalist system or any system that's premised on production, because it, you know it's, it's, it just goes and ha- it, it each requires the other. Consumerism seems to me to be something of a different thing, which is sort of maybe the ideology of cons- consuming or the promotion of consuming to an mm-hmm. ultimate human value or or a, or, a, or a social good. When when you know when maybe there is people who might might dispute that but i suppose what you're asking me is um isn't consumerism you know the ability to consume and to have a good life and to have you know access to everything you need and um, isn't that what sort of the socialist project aims towards rather than towards a politics of austerity yeah less that it's a politics of abundancy abundance yeah Mm. yeah um and again, I suppose I think that question is hard to take. Yes, I'm one hand to say, yeah, absolutely, that is, you know, a part of the socialist project properly understood. It's to bring, you know, probably everybody up to a particular level rather than everybody down to a particular mm-hmm. level, which is often how it's interpreted. But I do think that promoting consumption or consumerism in the current context is problematic given given two key features of the current context. One is extreme inequality, and the other is 
um, you know, a context of a finite planet with very, very limited resources. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think consumption, promoting consumption in a context of extreme inequality where only some people have access to it is Mm -hmm. definitely a problem. But again, I suppose that's what you're you're getting at. It's consumerism for everybody. But at, at the same time, I think that we can't just look at consumption or consumerism as a valuable political goal when we already know that we have consumed far more of the world's natural resources than, than is good for the world, that, you know, the world is heating up, that if it heats up for another, you know, half degree over the next, I think, 30 years, we're in for, you know, some sort of climate chaos and so on. So I, I, I'm not sure I'd support Livingston instead of saying consumerism in itself is a good thing. Um, meeting needs, uh, going beyond meeting needs, enabling people to have flourishing lives, with, you know, access to what they need to achieve that. Yeah, absolutely. As part of the socialist project. I'm not sure I back sort of supporting consumerism as a social value in and of itself. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if I've answered exactly what you were. No, it's just interesting because, again, it kind of goes back to the idea that it, it occurred to me reading your piece that, um, again, that there's, there's, a, there's a stark difference between the two types, right? You, 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 the, the group identity seems to come out of... Um, a place of good faith, if, yeah. if that's fair to say. And then the consumeristic identity seems to be almost like something that got perpetrated on us. And I, I just, I, I wasn't so sure that, um, I should, uh, you know, not remark on that, 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 that yeah. it seemed that there was a kind of almost like a critique, a different caliber of critique you were leveling there in your yeah. piece. Well, I think it's, it's partly why the concept of identity is so complex and so difficult today, because precisely because it did evolve these two almost competing senses mm-hmm. in the 60s. You know, that it, that it's sort of essentializing message that it's capacity to enable us to think about ourselves as discrete individuals, um, with very distinctive characteristics at the same time as it enabled us to think about it ourselves as members of these very clearly defined mm-hmm. social groups, that, that, that these in a capitalist context became very contradictory ways and those contradictions were, 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 were embedded in or captured by the concept of identity, which is what makes it a keyword in that Williams sense that, you know, the problems of its meaning are very much bound up with the problems of the context of its use, you know, mm-hmm. and that it's not a surprise to me today that the left is so embattled and so embittered over the concept of identity because on the one hand it seems to dovetail so well with the social logic of capitalism. It seems to enable people to buy into the capitalist system, you know, to, to understand themselves as these individuals that are, you know, that, that don't need sort of, um, solidaristic systems and so on that, that they are individuals of neoliberal capitalism. It seems to promote that sort of Mentality at the same time as in the 60s, as Heider and others. Yeah. It also, you know, enabled a very solidaristic way of understanding grouphood and understanding how people could work together, how they could understand their oppression in a way that did not mark them as deficient, but that they could take pride in being members of the yeah. and yeah. actively mobilize on that basis. So these two senses of identity, which we can really trace, which are really there, you know, smack up against each other under neoliberal capitalism. And I, I think 
the personal sense of identity has definitely won out. Like if you talk to your average, mm-hmm. you know, 19 or 20 year old, and you know, apologies to any 19 or 20 year olds listening. We have many fans uh, of this show who are 19 and 20. I should tell you. So walk carefully here. Okay. You'll lose, you'll lose me listeners. Okay. Well, I'll tread very carefully. But when you ask them, and I used to do these tests on my little sister when I was writing my thesis many years ago, she was like 10 at the time. And I'd say, well, what's, hey, hey Kate, what's identity? And she'd say, it's like your personal profile. And that was, that was absolutely the understanding of identity, you know. And so there was, you know, and I do think that has trumped, which is a terrible word now, which I said I'd read from my vocabulary, but nonetheless, it has trumped. Working on it. It's a work in progress. Yeah. The the kind of social sense, which did exist. And there is potential there. The social sense still exists in certain contexts. Yeah. Um, But I think it's kind of an active project of, 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 you know, managing the, 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 our relationship with the category of identity. I don't think we should use it sort of un, unconsciously or use it as, you know, a kind of a, you know, a, a catch-all word. It's just used so easily by so many people. And yet it has this hugely complex history and it does this work, whether we like it or not, in these different contexts that we have to be very aware of on the left, whether we see ourselves as opposed to uh-huh, the uh-huh. of identity politics. I wanted to see if you would be interested in commenting on um, recent debates about other uh, works related to yours that are that are circulating at the minute. Uh, we've spoken today about essentialism. Uh, we've spoken about the risks of posing ourselves in in terms of uh, identity uh, culture as ter- as creatures of cultural types um, and identity based experiences. And I think it, it's, um, it's interesting that your work, your piece came out right around the same time as Assad Haider's book, which seems on the surface, at least to make a very similar argument to your own in, indeed, uh, one, I suppose, key overlapping aspect of your argument and his is that, um, you know, again, as it, as it sort of seemed to first emerge, uh, the cultural essentialist turn invited a more, um, perhaps revolutionary or emancipatory politics. Um, you've just now been talking about the sort of triumph of the consumeristic iteration of identity yeah. over the former. Have you have you read that book? And it, and if so, uh, are you seeing much similarity between his account of of the fall of identity politics and your own, or? Are, are, do you see in your account a, a sort of a different narrative, a different version um, of how we how we got from that revolutionary solidaristic form of identity politics to where we are now? Yeah, I, ha- I have I have read um, Hyder's book. Um, read it recently enough, and I quite I quite enjoyed it. Um, mm-hmm. um, I do I don't think he makes uh, a similar distinction between personal and social identity. I don't right. think he. I think there's sort of a muddiness there. Um, but, and that's fine. I mean, you know, that wasn't his aim or intent. But nonetheless, it, it means he doesn't make the same kind of argument as I do in terms of the distinction between these different senses evolving and doing different kinds of work in the context of class divided neoliberal and also class race gender divided neoliberal capitalist societies. Mm. But apart from that, so I think, you know, when he's talking about the sort of devolution of the radical forms of identity politics of the 60s. He's definitely talking about the social sense of identity. And there mm-hmm. is a story to be told there too, quite distinct from how the personal sense has in certain respects um, trumped the social. So I suppose I think that um, 
well, to start, I mean, Heidi's book, I think it's very valuable for a number of reasons, which is, you know, I want, kind of want to say that before I sure, engage sure. In, in some criticism. But like criticism is, is minor, it's, it's, but it's there. I think he puts identity politics firmly in a material historical context. So he doesn't treat the claims made under the banner of identity politics as some kind of universal abstract claims about particularity and so on. He very much locates them in the historical material conditions in which they were made, and that's really, really valuable. Mm. He does that. Um, the second thing I think he does really well is he very clearly makes the case that race and race, racism and capitalism are bound up together, and that you can't properly understand or address or explain one without the other. And this is, you know, very interesting consequences for how we construe or understand questions of, say, the white working class, which is a lot now, or conception of whiteness in itself. I mean, I think in the early parts of the book, he makes a very, I think, persuasive argument that whiteness is basically the expression of privilege under capitalism, where capitalism mm. has involved as a racialized system. So you can't treat or address whiteness apart from addressing capitalism and capitalist inequality in the same for blackness and anti-blackness. And I think anti-black racism, and I think he's absolutely right in, in making this. And then I think the third reason he makes I think the third reason he's valuable, his work is valuable is I do see it as an attempt to sort of so-called unite the left. I do see it as an effort to say, look, I, I think class politics is where it's at, but we can't just dismiss identity politics. We have yeah. sort of complicated thinking of how they've co-evolved over history and then formulate new modes of resistance that properly take on board these understandings. So for those three reasons, I think this is a, it's a valuable intervention and a valuable book. But but I think, and it's kind of similar to my critique of Nancy Fraser, you know, mm. 20 years ago, I don't think he properly historicized the category of identity. He historicized yeah. identity politics. He looks at how class, yeah. capitalism, and racism are bound up together, and he tries to unite the left. But all of those projects are undermined, I think, by his failure to not put the category of identity itself in historical materialist perspective. He doesn't do it. And Can I ask you this? Yes. Yeah. Uh, just real quick on that, because it's like, I don't know, a listener might say at that point in your response, um, okay, look, I, I mean... Uh, we, we, so we so we go the extra mile and we we take some time to to situate identity or whatever have you. Yeah. But um, it just sort of evokes this um, Alan Woods quote that I that I stumbled across across the last couple of days. You know that 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 while capitalism is conceivable without racial divisions, that's that's not the capitalism we have today. You know, so it's almost like okay, you know, maybe you're right, Marie. Maybe maybe, maybe identity is this novel thing but nevertheless like like for example one of the things Heider is putting on the table is this notion of strategic essentialism and um, it, it, a concept that I suppose is trying to to help us navigate um, the fact that identity struggles are in many ways referring to to real and existing problems um, which why we don't want to necessarily you know manage them in essentialized terms it can be helpful uh, and I think you even bring Spivak in periodically in your in your work um, to make a similar point. So, so you know, in in the long run, aren't you kind of aren't your politics the same as his? Or how does this novelty of identity inflect how you would answer the question? Say, what is to be done? Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, I, I do think in many respects my politics are the same as his, but they do differ on what I see as the crucial issue, you know, that uh, on the histor- historicity of the category of identity itself. Because if you understand identity as a recent novel idea that emerged in and through what we now know as the identity politics of yeah. the 60s, that gives you a very definite understanding or definition of identity politics with which to work. Now, I think Hyder falls prey to the problem that I started discussing at the very start of the show, where everything can be, you know, identity politics is Clinton's politics, it's <laughs> call-out culture, yes, it's yes. class politics, all these things. Okay, try, I think he needs to make better sense of what is identity politics in order to go on to make the, the kinds of claims he wants to make properly. So I would define identity politics as any form of politics that mobilizes around the category of identity and in which the category of identity is meaningful to its protagonists. So this distinguishes identity politics from all forms of gender and race and, and sexuality-based organizing. But let's just say focus on race-based organizing because that's what his book is. That's what his, right yes, now. right. So what it means is we can make distinctions between race-based organizing or anti-racist organizing and identity politics by recognizing that not all anti-racist politics or race-based organizing mobilizes around the category of identity. A lot of it mobilizes around the category of mm-hmm. equality, for example, mm-hmm. or exploitation or oppression. So it's a big mistake to see all forms of race-based organizing as identity politics, because quite simply, they're not. The category of identity doesn't do any meaningful work in some of these politics. Okay, so that's, you know, sort of the first big consequence of historicizing okay. the category of identity, because you can start, you don't have to fall into that trap of seeing all non-class politics as identity politics, because they're not. A lot of, a lot of um, racist or anti-racist organizing very much proceeds along um, class-based lines, you know, understanding the basis of racial um, oppression as bound up with capitalism, which is what he claims, you know, which is what his he claims is the basis of his understanding. But he also falls then into the trap of considering all kinds of uh, race-based organising as identity politics when, when, you know, when it's not. So another thing I think we can do then is, you know, in order to kind of distinguish between the kinds of so-called identity politics that we might like to promote and the ones that we, we wouldn't, wouldn't like to promote so much, maybe, is to use the understanding of identity politics as politics that mobilise around identity to address some questions that come up in the identity politics debate. Like, mm. are identity politics always divisive? What's the relationship between identity politics and call-out culture? Instead yeah. Seeing identity politics as the equivalent of all race-based organizing, all gender-based organizing, and so on, we can we can look precisely at those forms of politics that actually do use and mobilize around the concept of identity, and then answer the questions on those on, on that basis. Well, thanks, Marie. I was curious about that because I think um, certainly for listeners like myself who who can't quite figure out which side of the Marxism versus postmodernism divide that they are on. This is obviously a, a pretty complex terrain to navigate. You know, we, we do have this tendency to see um, identity as uh, just as much a universal field of struggle as the material one described by Marx. But anyway, I, I interrupted you earlier when I think you were about to start talking or answering the question about how we got from the revolutionary identity politics of the 1960s that folks like Heider so obviously support to the kinds of identity politics we have today. 
Do you want to answer that question before we move on any further? Okay, so how did we get from the sort of revolutionary solidaristic forms of identity politics of the 60s to where we are now? I suppose I've already covered one of my answers, which is that I think the personal sense of identity has come to predominate. But something has happened within the identity politics themselves, within those politics that mobilise specifically around the category of identity. And I think what was really important about the identity politics of the 60s, and say we look at the um, the Black Power movement, for example, was that they understood their identity as the specificity of the kinds of oppression they experienced as a group, that they were racialized under capitalism, under imperialism, under all these sort of oppressive systems. And that gave rise to their identity, and they used this identity then as the basis for their resistance. But, and here's the crucial thing, they didn't mobilize around their identity in the way many people mobilize around their identities today. That is to say, in terms of what we kind of might now call call-out culture and, you know, the kind of campus politics of safe spaces and microaggressions, which is focused totally on the concept of identity and the idea that the oppression is located within a personal identity, that an individual kind of harbors the oppression in their body and therefore a misuse of language or, you know, um, and, um, or something kind of around making a safe, un- a space unsafe is, you know, absolutely so threatening to the core of this politics that sees the oppression in this vulnerable body that needs to be minded, that needs to be defended, that needs to be protected mm. and so on. The, the identity politics of the 60s, while they understood their oppression in terms of their identity, they saw their identity then as providing a way into a radical, solidaristic, anti-capitalist politics. Because by understanding how these systems of capitalism and racism work together to produce the particular experiences of inequality in their lives, they were able to see that capitalism and racism had to be defeated together. So the identity provided a point of entry into a radical politics, but didn't become the substance of the politics as has happened today. So what's happened is, I think, we've devolved from a position where identity kind of shone a spotlight on on how systems intersected and how they created the forms of inequality that particular groups experienced to becoming the core of politics, which starts, finishes and ends with this protection or defense uh. of a notion of identity and that the kind of call out culture has has sort of evolved around around that. Okay, so you just mentioned the idea of intersecting systems of power and and I know that people can have very strong reactions to that concept. Uh, but maybe let's just jump into it a little bit here uh, as we draw towards the end of our conversation today. I think one of the big criticisms um, of the Hyder book, for example, is that while the abstract idea of an intersectional multitude, uh, or whatever you want to call it, might be fine, um, in practice the track record of today's actually existing movements isn't really all that inspiring. Do you have a take on that, or maybe I can rephrase the question, how much faith would you have uh, that an emphasis on intersectionality will be able to resolve some of the issues we've been discussing today? You know, I suppose intersectionality has been kind of mooted as the kind of big answer to all the problems of identity politics. And I don't think it is. I think intersectionality is great when we're looking at how systems intersect, how forms of oppression intersect. That's what the Black Power Movement did. When intersectionality is confined to the analysis of identity, we're in trouble. Because again, 
it's back to this idea that the oppression is located in a specific group or a specific uh, body and that only that group body can act to end that oppression. And obviously, we need mass power, mass mobilization, you know, building of alliances, solidarity across all sorts of lines in recognition of the way in which inequalities are, are, are created together by the big system, big oppressive systems over time. And we need to work collectively to challenge those at that level. And I think a focus on identity properly used, what might provide insight into that, but it can't be the be all and end all of politics because it won't go anywhere if that's the case. Brilliant. Well, I think that's a strong note to end our interview on. Marie Morin, thank you very much indeed for joining us. It uh, it took some time to get this together and uh, you've been incredibly diligent uh, and patient with me going back and forth on uh, some complex arguments. Uh, and we've covered a lot of that in this show. I hope the listeners enjoyed it. Um, I want to thank you once again. Um, you know, time zone difference and everything. Uh, you've been really great. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Um, get you back on the show uh, with some updates on your work. Brilliant. I'd love that. Thanks so much, Nick. It's been great. Thank you, Marie.